Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. It's good to be here worshiping Jesus together. Uh, last week, I had an opportunity to have lunch with our uh, former pastor, John Tolley, and he wanted me to communicate his greetings to all of you. I communicated your greetings to him. I know you hadn't given those to me yet, but I'm sure you're willing to do that now uh, so that I was not a liar. Uh, but he's thankful for all of you and wants to say hello to all of you, appreciates you. Uh, I want to start our sermon today uh, by having you turn to Mark chapter 2. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Jesus Revealed in which we are learning a little more about who Jesus is each and every week as we walk through the Gospel of Mark. The phrase that got stuck in my head over the course of the last couple of weeks as I was reading this passage was the phrase, watershed moment. Right? You ever used that phrase or heard that phrase, watershed moment? Right? What is a watershed moment? Well, the phrase has its origins in topography. A watershed is a river system that collects the rain and snow from an area, and it all comes down into that particular river system, right? So everything flows down into this one particular river system, this watershed. But if you make your way up across those mountains, uh, very Sound of Music style, I think, you're going to reach a place where all of a sudden the water begins to flow in a different direction. You're standing here and all of the water flows down into this watershed. But as you're going over this peak, you're going to suddenly step into a place where every bit of rain and every bit of snow flows a different direction down into a different watershed. And that transition from one watershed to the water flowing a different direction down into another watershed. When you pass that, that's a watershed moment. Now, we don't use watershed moment in a literal sense about rain and snow. We use it as an idiom to describe a moment that changes everything. Right? What's a watershed moment? Think of a watershed moment. There was a key watershed moment in human history about 600 years ago in 1435. What happened in 1435? Right? Really big event in human history. Maybe this gives you a clue. Right? In 1435, a man named Johannes Gutenberg invented the first printing press. No longer, if a book was to be copied, did it have to be hand transcribed by somebody. Now you could actually make copies of the pages. And this had an enormous impact on the world. Suddenly, books made their way more and more into the hands of people. Literacy grew. With the growth of literacy, there was an explosion of universities and the founding of universities. Bibles could now be copied in greater number. So Bibles began to make their way into the hands of clergy that had never had them before and into the hands of lay people. And as they read them, they said, hey, my, my church doesn't work like this. Hey, uh, my church seems really corrupt compared to what this says. And the outflow of that is the Protestant Reformation. 
Ultimately, science and technology experience a boom as information can more accurately be copied and, easier, uh, and it's easier for it to be transmitted to others. It is a watershed moment. Everything in the world went one way before Gutenberg's printing press, and afterwards there was this change. Everything was new. We can have watershed moments in our lives personally. Everything's headed one direction, a moment takes place, and suddenly everything is different. Churches can have watershed moments. Countries can have watershed moments. But the point that Mark is trying to make in his gospel is that the great watershed moment in all of history is the coming of Jesus Christ because he is God in the flesh who came to dwell with his creation. And this morning, we are going to see this watershed moment of Jesus communicating something different to people about salvation in the kingdom of God. Before Jesus, there was an understanding of how a person could enter the kingdom. But Jesus came and he changed that understanding. There was a watershed moment. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Last week, Jesus was in a home, perhaps the home of Peter, where they cut a hole in the roof and lowered a man down through the roof. Jesus forgives the man's sins and he heals him. But in today's passage, Jesus has now moved to the shoreline. He's walking along the beach, perhaps in a setting very much like this one outside of Capernaum. And as he is walking along the shore, people approach him. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, identifies Levi as the disciple that we know as Matthew. Uh, he is one of many people who are followers of Jesus in the New Testament that winds up with more than one name. And Levi was a pariah. One time a few years ago, I was in an Awana class, and I asked the Awana kids, do you know what a pariah is? Silence. Kids staring at me until one brave young boy in a dinosaur t-shirt says, yeah, pariah are those little fish with sharp teeth that eat people. <laughs> right? You try not to laugh out loud in those situations at kids, but that's good. Uh, yeah, not quite, right? What is a pariah? A pariah is someone that no one wants to be around. And that's Levi. He's a pariah because he is a tax collector. In the New Testament, tax collectors are associated with uh, adulterers, prostitutes, and sinners. Why? Well, if it was 2,000 years ago and I was a tax collector... I would have registered a bid to become a tax collector with the government of Rome. Uh, I register a bid, let's say, for $10 million for Scott County. Now, as a tax collector, I am responsible to collect $10 million from you, the citizens of Scott County, and get that to Rome. But if, as a tax collector, I collect $11 million, 
who gets the extra million? Right? Yeah, I, I do. And so the tax collectors often had private security forces or brute squads, right, that they would bring with them in order to make sure that they got every penny that they demanded as a tax collector. Tax collectors often grew wealthy off of scraping taxes away from the poorest of the poor among those who lived in Israel. Not only that, but who were they collecting taxes for? For the enemy-occupying army that had enslaved Israel. How popular would it be if a Ukrainian citizen went around to Ukrainian villagers right now with their own private security force and demanded that they pay taxes so that they could take that money and give it to Russia for its war machine? How popular would that Ukrainian citizen be? Not particularly. For Levi, it might have been worse than for many tax collectors. Uh, Levi was a name that not always, but most of the time, was given to boys who were born within the tribe of Levi. And what were the men of the tribe of Levi to be about? Yeah, that's right. They were designated as the priests and Levites who would operate the temple. And so it is distinctly possible that Levi had not only abandoned his country in order to raise taxes for Rome, but that he had abandoned his God-given post in the temple, helping people to worship in order to go and raise, ta uh, raise taxes for that enemy-occupying country. What kind of people, given the unpopularity of the position, would become tax collectors? Those who were greedy and corrupt. The Old Testament commentary, uh, the Old Testament commentaries refer to tax collectors as robbers because of their greed and dishonesty. One Roman playwright wrote, I would erect a monument to an honest tax collector if ever I found one. Uh, the Jews of Jesus' day considered a house to be unclean if a tax collector had eaten in it. And Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector, to come and be his what? His disciple. Come and learn from me. Come and live with me. Come and represent me. Right? This was a scandalous calling. This calling of Jesus was a scandalous calling. Everyone looked at this calling and said, What? This doesn't make any sense, Jesus. But it is an example of the watershed moment that came with Jesus and people's understanding of who could be a part of the kingdom of God. What is clear is that everyone who was around Jesus understood good people can be a part of the kingdom, bad people, like tax collectors, like prostitutes, like adulterers, they could never be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is open to anyone who will repent and follow me. The kingdom of God is open to anyone who will repent and follow me. Jesus is constantly calling scandalous people to come and be his followers. There's Levi, the tax collector. There's Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons possessing her. 
There is the woman in John chapter 4 who had been married to five husbands and was living with a sixth man. There's the prostitute woman in Luke chapter 7, and on and on we could go. He is constantly calling people who were shocking, who were scandalous. The Jews of Jesus' day thought the kingdom of God was just for good people. People whose lives looked clean and good on the outside. And Jesus is regularly telling them through the people that he is calling, no, the kingdom of God is for anyone who will repent and will come and follow after me. This is a watershed moment in people's understanding of the kingdom of God. Jesus is constantly calling scandalous people to be his followers today. He loves to call people who've been involved in years and years of sexual sin to leave it all behind and come and follow him. He loves to call people who have spent their entire lives trying to look good to others on the outside to leave all that behind and come and follow him. He loves to call people who have been filled with addictions to leave all that and come and follow him. He loves to call people who have been abused and feel shame to leave that shame behind because they've come and follow him, experiencing his forgiveness. Jesus loves to call scandalous people to come and be his followers. This is a watershed moment. Do you enter into the kingdom by being good enough, by being clean enough? Jesus says, no, you enter into the kingdom by repenting and following me. Levi's an example of that. Now, Levi has Jesus come to his house because it is time for a party. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus went to Levi's house. Luke's gospel says there was a great celebration, right? A party is going on right here. And so as they are celebrating, Levi doesn't have a lot of good and upright friends to bring to the party. Good and upright people didn't associate with people like Levi. And so who does he have that he can invite to the party? People who are known sinners, his fellow tax collectors. And Jesus is spending time hanging out with them. And not everybody is a big fan that Jesus is doing that. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke's gospel actually adds two words to the end of that, and those words are to repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, it means following Jesus and all that he's called us to and the example that he has set in how we interact with people who don't know God. Jesus gives us a perfect model of how we are to interact with people who don't know God. We see the apostles carrying out this same kind of interaction with people who don't know God. It's a perfect model that we might think of as the road, right? The road is following Jesus' example of how we interact with people who are far from God and don't know God. But there are ditches that are wrong on both sides of that road that people may fall into. On one side is the ditch of the Pharisees in which we just avoid all sinners. The Pharisees had an understanding that you are holy by avoiding all unholy people. 
And so the Pharisees formed little holy huddles and made sure that they never interacted with anyone who was unholy. It, was, it blew their mind that Jesus would sit and share a meal and fellowship with people who were unholy. That's, that's a breakdown in the system. We are holy by avoiding people who are unholy. This isn't the way of Jesus, right? This is a ditch on one side of the road that we may be tempted to fall into to try and avoid anyone who doesn't know God, to form our own little holy huddles and not interact with lost people. But the ditch that is on the other side is equally dangerous, and that's to just hang out with lost people for the sake of hanging out with lost people, to just be friends with lost people for fun. In fact, what we see from Jesus is He doesn't just hang out with sinners to hang out with sinners. Sometimes you might hear somebody say that. Well, Jesus was a friend of sinners, so I just hang out with sinners. Jesus always hung out with sinners to call them to repentance. He always hung out with sinners in order to bring them to a place where they would follow him. Jesus was always on mission when he was with those who didn't know God and who were far from God. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, his aims need to be our aims. It is unloving to God and unloving to unsaved people to just hang out with them for months on end, having fun with them. What they need more than anything is the great friendship The friendship that comes when we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. And we are being unloving towards God and them if we are not on mission with those who don't know Jesus. Jesus shows us the right path so that we don't fall into either of these wrong ditches. Before Jesus, the prevailing view was none of these kinds of people could be saved. These tax collectors, these sinners... These None of them could be saved. But Jesus comes and in a watershed moment for people's understanding about the kingdom of God says, no, the kingdom of God is open to any who will repent and come and follow me. The one group of people that the kingdom of God is not open to are those who will not admit their need. Jesus says that there's people who who won't call for the doctor. They won't admit their soul sickness. They can't enter the kingdom. Because to enter the kingdom, we have to understand we're sick. We have to come to the great physician for the healing of our soul. Jesus says, anyone who will admit their sickness, their sin, and come to me can enter into the kingdom of God through repentance and following me. It's a watershed moment in the understanding of who can enter the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of a watershed moment is equally on display in the second scene in our passage today. Entrance to the kingdom of God is about repenting and believing in Jesus. In our second scene, we read, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So first, Jesus is criticized for eating with the wrong people. Now Jesus and his disciples are criticized for not stopping eating. 
John's disciples fast. The Pharisees' disciples fast. How come you and your disciples aren't fasting Jesus? The criticism is made even stronger by the fact that John's disciples and the Pharisees and their followers were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Right? How did John the Baptist refer to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers is how John referred to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious insiders in Jerusalem. John's followers were religious outsiders in the wilderness. These were completely different groups, but they agreed on this one thing, fasting. And so they fasted twice a week. And so they come to Jesus and they say, wait a minute, John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, everybody's doing it, Jesus. How come you and your disciples aren't skipping meals? What's going on here? Jesus says this in response. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Because the purpose of fasting is for more of God's presence. Jesus says, why would my disciples fast? God in the flesh is present with them right here, right now. Why would they fast for more of God's presence when I'm right here? He, he uses this term bridegroom about himself. This is a term used throughout the Old Testament for the living God, for Yahweh. Places like Isaiah 54, Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 31. God is the bridegroom in the Old Testament and his people are the bride. And Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh, covenant God, I am the bridegroom. This is a watershed event in all of human history. The living God has come to dwell with his creatures. That's what he wants them to understand. The bridegroom, the living God, has come to be with people. And in Jesus, all of the power and presence of God stands there among them. He says, why would they fast for more of God's presence when the bridegroom is right here? Why pursue God through that when God is right here? Jesus goes on to talk about this further when he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus uses two different illustrations here in order to communicate you can't mix the old and the new. The first one is of a patch. He says you can't put a new patch on an old piece of clothing. That old piece of clothing has already gone through the washing and laundering process. It's already shrunk. And so if you put that new piece of that new patch on there, when it goes through the laundering process, it's going to shrink. But it, the clothes around it won't shrink, and so it's going to actually tear away. And things are going to look worse than they did in the first place. He says you also can't take new wine, which is going to expand as it ages, and put it into old wineskins that have already expanded. Their elasticity is gone. 
Because as the new wine expands, there's no elasticity left in the old wineskins. They're going to burst and everything is going to be ruined. What, what is Jesus saying here? The crux of what he's saying is, in these two parables, you can't mix the new with the old. You can't mix the new with the old. Jesus is the new. Jesus is the watershed moment. He is the one who has come who has changed everything and made everything new. What is the old? You can't mix the new and the old. What's the old? If Jesus is the new, what's the old? Some people have said, well, the old is the law. Well, I don't think so. There's no mention of the law anywhere around here. Some people have said the old is fasting. Isn't that kind of the context here, fasting? Well, what's the problem with understanding the old to be fasting? Jesus says, well, when I'm taken away, my disciples are going to fast. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches his disciples how to fast. So it seems very unlikely that the old is fasting. And so what is the old that you can't mix with the new? I think the old is pursuing God without Jesus. That's what they were doing. Those who were fasting were seeking to draw close to God without Jesus. Jesus says, if you understood who I am, God in the flesh... You wouldn't be pursuing God without me over here fasting. You would be standing right here, worshiping God through me because I am the living God. He says, there's this old way. Old way of pursuing God without Jesus Christ. He says, that, that's the old way. You can't mix that with the new way, which is recognizing Jesus Christ is the living God and pursuing him. The two don't mix. You have to pursue God in the new ways that recognize him as God. Jesus as God in the flesh. That he has made everything new. Jesus' coming was the watershed moment in all of history. Right? The watershed moment in all of history. He is the bridegroom who makes all things new. Everything changed when he came. And the same is true in our lives when we enter into relationship with Jesus. It is the watershed moment in our life. Everything changes when we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. There are still some people who try to just add a Jesus patch to their old way of living. I want all of the things that I was pursuing. I want my way. I want the things that the world offers. But I would like a little bit of a Jesus patch here to get me to heaven. I'd like a little bit of a Jesus patch here to help my kids behave better. I'd like a little bit of a Jesus patch here in order to make me feel better on the inside. I'm going to keep pursuing all the things I did before Jesus, but I'd like a little bit of a Jesus patch. Jesus says, no, that's... Never the way it works. When I come into a person's life, it's the watershed moment of their life. And everything in their life afterwards is about me. All of their pursuits are about me. Everything that they look to is because they look to me. Jesus coming into our life, it is the watershed moment in our lives.
Because we now pursue God as Jesus, through Jesus, we fast. Jesus' disciples didn't fast because Jesus was physically present with them. But he says, when I'm not physically present with my followers anymore, what will they do? Right? They'll fast. They'll fast. And so we fast while Jesus' disciples didn't because Jesus isn't physically present with us. We fast because we want him to be. We fast for his quick return because we want Jesus to be present with us and we want all that he has promised to be fulfilled. We also fast because we recognize that great watershed moment in which Jesus becomes the focus of our life is constantly bombarded by temptations. And those temptations are often the best things in life. They're the great gifts of God. But they creep in and want to take Jesus' place as the priority in our life. And so we put those great gifts aside, represented by food. We put those great gifts aside for a period of time in order to say, God, life is about you, the giver, not about the gifts. We're focused on you, the giver. All good comes through relationship with the giver. And so we want to practice that as a church family together. Uh, you were handed a fasting guide as you were on your way in. If you didn't get one, there's some in the back, and you can get them on your way out. And we want to practice fasting together to draw close to Jesus, to set all gifts and distractions aside for a 24-hour period of time and just pursue Him. Uh, we've suggested that that start this afternoon. Uh, go Eat lunch. You might have lunch plans. We didn't want to mess with that. All right, go eat lunch. But then after lunch, begin your fasting. And carry on that fasting until lunch tomorrow. The fasting guide has some suggested scriptures and prayer opportunities for this afternoon. And for this evening. And for tomorrow morning when you wake up. And for tomorrow at lunchtime before you break the fast and eat again, right? So let me encourage all of us to seek Jesus together as we fast together. Uh, if you have kids, by all means, be wise in how you fast and how you do this. You got medical issues, by all means, be wise. You, you figure that out for yourself. But in some way, participate in setting aside gifts and distractions so that we can be completely and totally focused on Jesus, the giver of all things, God Almighty. We, we want to focus on him right now as we go to the table. We take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his shed blood through which we can have forgiveness. We don't fast in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. We fast to draw close to Jesus. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is entirely purchased by what Jesus did that we celebrate at this table. His death on our behalf. And so as we continue to worship and spend time, I want to encourage you to go and get those elements when you're ready. Bring them back to your seats. And in a few minutes... All come back up and lead us in the taking of those elements together. 
Right? Let, let's continue to worship Jesus, continue to be focused on him and his goodness, continue to be reminded that what he has done is the watershed moment in all of human history because he's God Almighty who came to dwell with his creation. Let's praise him together. song that we're going to be singing this morning called Come to Me. It's based on the scripture found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. So I'd encourage you as we sing this new song to let your hearts meditate on the words, especially as we enter in to this church-wide time of fasting and praying and drawing near to the Lord. When we fast, the Lord encourages us to come to him for rest, for renewal. So as we sing this song, I pray that that the words would touch your heart as you meditate on scripture. <laughs> 